Welcome everyone to the first of our seminars in theology, medicine, and culture this year. Really delighted that uh, that you're all here. We're not. We may in the future do a roundtable introduction. We're not going to do that today in the interest of time, so that we leave plenty of time for for Dr. Apolletti to speak. Um, I'm Warren Kinghorn. I'm. I'm uh, I know most of you. I'm uh, teach here at the medical school as well as at the divinity school, and uh, I'm glad to be part of work in theology, medicine, and culture at the Divinity School. Um, just want to welcome all of you here, whether you're affiliated with the medical school or Divinity School or both or neither. Um, this, this, this space is really an opportunity to have share a meal, to have conversation, to engage with people who are doing really interesting things, uh, to engage with stories, to share ideas, to learn from each other, um, and with the assumption and, and the hope that we don't all come from the same context and look build some community of conversation across time. So I'm really grateful for all of you being here. I have some flyers that list our fall seminars. Um, if you sign up on our email list, then you'll, you'll also get these electronically, but I'll, uh, I'll pass these around. So please take one, and then we'll leave some uh, here afterwards as well. So, so welcome. Please, uh, please uh, thanks for being here today. Please come back uh, for our next seminar, uh, which will be on the 30th of September um, with uh, John Swinton. He'll be visiting us from the University of Aberdeen. And We'll, we'll meet in the building next door, the Trent Seaman Center for that, which you can get on, on email. Um, but I really just appreciate your being here, and I really appreciate um, Esther Akalatse for being here to present with us, and Brett McCarty is going to introduce Dr. Akalatse. Yeah, it's a, it's a joy to have Dr. Akalatse with us for our first seminar of the year. Um, her seminar is entitled Life and Living, A View from Death and Dying, and I think we're going to get some neat uh, interactive content uh, both with her and digitally. Um, but Dr. Agalatse is <coughs> professor of the practice of moral, pastoral theology and world Christianity here at Duke at the Divinity School. Um, originally from Ghana, she has her MTS from Harvard and her PhD from Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, so from those uh, levels of royalty, she has descended to <laughs> us here at Duke, um, both Ghanaian and uh, Ivy League royalty. She the hobbit of the south. Yeah, right. To, uh, so, so it's a real joy to have Dr. Akalatse with us to lead us in this first conversation. Um, and uh, I'm really looking forward to, to the wisdom she's going to bring and also the conversation she'll start for us. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Akalatse. Uh, thank you for, uh, for this invitation and for being here. And... Um, I know a few of you, and I'm pleased about that. Um, and I'm seeing someone I think I know, and my brain won't rest and do this work until I... Uh, do I know you? I'm, the Carol, I'm Carol Gregg. I'm the pastor of oh, the congregation. Oh, sorry. Okay, got it. <laughs> you look different without your robe. But I thought I... Yeah, thank you. So I thought I might start by way of introduction as to how I came um, to be doing Death and Dying. Um, I'm, from, I'm from Ghana, as we say, and death is always around us, whether we like it or not. I mean, you can go to the grocery store and get this part of the chicken without bothering. But if you were like me, you had to go first find the egg, grow the chicken, you know, learn to take the feathers off the, the neck. First you have to catch it. And then put your little feet on its wings and 
make a hole in the ground and slit its throat and pour the blood out into the hole, seal it, and then wait for it to finish dying because, you know, cutting its throat doesn't mean it's dead. You have to wait for it to finish its dying and then you go do other things like put it in hot water, pluck the feathers, give it a bath, and then you start cutting like a surgeon. You have to know how to cut it so you have meat on every part of the bone. So that is butchering 101. <laughs> and so you see death all the time and you come to quickly learn that nothing lives unless something dies. And that we all live because something died. And then you come to this part where you can go and get your fish and your chicken from <coughs> plastic wrapped things and if you don't take care you forget. And I think I was on the way of forgetting when I did CPE in 93 or some such time and walking people through death. And I remember how distraught my mother was that I was walking people through death. Proper West Africans, we believe in ghosts. You know, if you're walking people through death and their spirit is leaving, right. hey, they could come, you know, inhabit your space instead. But that is another story. But watching people die and walking people through death, I came to quickly understand how much of our dying shows us how we live and how much of dying is refracted through socio-cultural and religious moments and beliefs. And that how a people die it's more about how they live and what they believe about life. And, and that is what frames my, my teaching in Death and Dying, which I've been doing at Duke since 2004, helping conversations across cultures around death and dying to bring us to moments of understanding who human beings are and who human beings are that we are called to care for, whether physically as in the medical school or psycho-spiritually as in the divinity school. I'm assuming that is what occupies this space and what, what other places. So there's more to learn about a people through their mortuary and funeral rites. That is watching death and dying. Then, then we know. And in theological language, what we believe about life and the body, in a sense, our geographies of life and death portray our beliefs more than the attempts at the end to sustain life which we might see more in the medical school. And maybe if we attended to how people did their dying, what we attend to when they are dying, and our attempts to sustain that life might be different. Mm -hmm. 
So it means that we should at all costs allow people to die according to how they have lived. It is their final act, hopefully <coughs> final intentional act as humans. And if we can talk about death and life with dignity, forget Paul Ramsey, who questions what we mean by life with dignity, probably know that article, otherwise uh, Brett is going to find it for you. <laughs> <laughs> then their dying ought to be after their own pattern of life. Yet as we learn from Wuthering Heights, yes, I'm a literature buff. <laughs> How do you die when you haven't learned to live? And the obverse is equally true. How do you live when you haven't learned to die? How can you live when you don't know how to die? Because life and death are conjoined from the beginning, you see. While you're coming out of the birth canal, your death starts. Yes? Yes. Amen. That was my <laughs> So willy-nilly, you're living towards your death. And yet somehow we are primed to think that we are living towards life. It's a lie. We have to resist it. And so we see life through death's eye, really. Even when we are not consciously doing so. That is it, people. And those of us who live on the other side of the chapel, we talk about, remember your baptism. But all we see is a pretty frock and the pictures we take after. And we forget this is an invitation to die. So in many ways also, death is not about dying, but about living. So when I say in my title, looking at life through death's eye, rather than eyes, I'm inviting us to think of it in the way Jesus talks about <laughs> singleness of eye, that we need to be people with a single eye, no. Okay, the theologians have figured it out. The medical students. Um, uh, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Nothing in between. This is it. Eyes front and focused. So if you're focusing on your dying, not to be morbid, what would you live like? And if death is the single-minded eye through which all things are refracted, how should we be paying attention to it? Have I confused us yet? And because I say that the way we die, if we look carefully, is refracted through our social-cultural, psycho-spiritual ways of living, rather than even medically, because even medically, what we do medically is refracted mm -hmm. social 
culturally. Yes. And since I have to confess that I don't know much about the West and mammograms and all those other things, as I know about my people, I'm going to spend uh, the rest of the time talking to you about what my people do. And I'm hoping that savvy uh, Duke students that you are, you will draw the parallels without my painting a picture. Okay. And so I'm calling this African Geographies of Life and Death, where geography is, you know, um, physical geography at least, where one lives. And to think of the African as one who lives in the body as well as in the home, where home is not just the two-by-four structure that you have, but uh, ancestral dwelling places as well. And since your body doesn't belong to you, but belongs to your ancestors, uh, living in your body and living in the home is the only way you join yourself to your people in life and death. And so that is the background to what I'm going to say now. So the body in African spatial ecologies is the primary focus of habitation. We don't wear the Nike and Jordan things for nothing. <laughs> this is not a dualism in which the body is the house of the soul. Even though in some languages, reference to body may mean frame of the person. Yet African anthropology's valuation of the soma without attention to corporeality in its entirety as more than fleshly existence, vestiges of which continue in African-American culture, have drawbacks to this worldly living and implications for other worldly life as well. Back to the Nike and how much we dress this body, even if we don't have a place to live. You know, so we have nice shoes, nice cars, but we may live in a mud pie. But it is because this is where I live. Yes. So you could wear your T-shirt, but I couldn't. I have to do this. African culture conceives of life as lived within the liminal, psycho-spiritual sphere between living dead and the living. Nobody's dead. But this space, especially in post-colonial and Christian times, is fractured, and all attempts to hold it together with a blend of traditional Christian and modern ecology proves futile which we will see in the clip in a moment. And since I'm talking to divinity students as well, I have to go here. So, for example, the message of the gospel preached to Africans was devoid of an eschatology that took seriously the clear lack of belief in the resurrection as evidenced in traditional eschatologies based on typologies of death and attendant mortuary and funeral rites that we witness continent-wide. We've already said how you live is how you die, how you die is how you live. And that will become clear as we go. So people are usually funeralized and buried 
according to how they lived and especially died. So when you witness a funeral, you will know how the deceased lived and died. Life is seen through death's eye in that sense. So even if you didn't know the person, you walk into town, you see what is going on, and you know who the person is, and you know how they died. Colonialism affected institutions and individuals, economic and political life, intra- and intergroup relations and identities, but more importantly, the very core of African self-identity, the way in which Africans understood and interacted with their landscape, the physical and human environment where the spiritual and material met and where they derived ultimate meaning. Because the African lives at the, um, what shall I say, <coughs> lives at the confluence of, of um, the physical and the spiritual, but lives at the, the level of spirit. If that is not there, they are not there. So in attempting to adapt to the changes thrust upon them, Africans reconfigured their understandings of and interactions with their landscapes in diverse ways, retaining vestiges of the old in spite of the press of modernity and yet opening up to the new ways that are apparently contradictory <coughs> in order to live and die good deaths. In other words, you have to recraft the psycho-spiritual space. So now, not only is that space fractured on the continent and in African spaces, <coughs> because of the modern and tradition, traditional life, that you have to try and live together. Now you translate that life into the Western sphere where the configuration of spiritual and secular is very different. And if you were not confused already at home, you get more confused here. Let me give examples from the medical school. If you're an African, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your ancestors. But your spouse is not also related to you. Because you're only related by blood. If you're matrilineal, your child is not related to you. Your child is related to your wife and your wife's brother more than they're related to you. Because you're related by blood. Your mother's, your, your, your sister's child is related to you. You don't know if your child is related to you. Yes? And don't tell me about DNA and sperm because... <laughs> We in the West have also figured out how to bypass biology. Yes, yes because you name your children as if 
a, a woman didn't contribute egg and blood, yes? Yeah, all those things you call surnames. And so, uh, someone is dying. And you're expecting decisions to be... I mean, who is in the room in the first place? Mm -hmm. Who is allowed in? You would assume spouse, right? But that confuses everybody. Because they're not related. You see, because during marriage... If you don't show up and she doesn't show up, it doesn't matter. The two of you are not needed. It's a coming together of marriage, uh, of families. You just happen to be... <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I didn't show up. I, I keep trying to figure out if my husband showed up. One of these days, I'm going to ask him. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but you don't have to show up because it's not about you. So now here you are at Duke Hospital. They want someone to make decisions. And they think they can ask your spouse. Right. And he's going to get in trouble if he makes decisions about somebody else's. And if it is their child, you're more likely to be required to ask her brother. But you don't understand that, you see. So they have to reconfigure this relationship in this new space. And then trouble begins. Because it's not your body. You've had that before. It's not your body. And even if it's your wife, that's not your business. And if they carry a dead body back to the village, you have to go and give account of how it is that we died. On whose authority did you say we can pull tubes? Are we making sense? So what is the way to go? And that is what colonialism and post-colonialism did, fracturing how to conceive of the body and how to conceive of the spaces in which bodies die and live. But even in the African space, it, it, it's, it's the same issue. If I live in the city and I die... If, I'm go, if, if my life is lived with the living and the living dead, I have to be carried back home mm -hmm. so that I can live again. <clears throat> Not in the Christian sense of resurrection, but the continuous uh, living dead. Mm -hmm. You're dead, but you're alive. Not in the coming out of the grave again. And we find that even Christians, because culture is so strong, still think like this. So caring for the dying needs to have this in its purview. You can't think that when they die, they're going to come again. So then it matters or it doesn't matter. <clears throat> it matters in a very different way. We want to die 
in a way that allows us to continue to be the living dead. Because for now, resurrection feels like Star Trek, you know, engage with spirits, finding bodies in the. It just sounds too Star Trek. We don't do that. And so, even in this space, when we die, we have to be carried home, to be buried so that. And depending on how we die, affects how. Funerals go, mortuary rites, as well as burial and <coughs> activities after burial. Because you don't just die like this. You die like this. You die in stages. You know, your soul keeps moving until it finally leaves. You know, when you don't get haunted houses again, then you know that we're gone. And for instance, different classes of people die differently, more in terms of function, not in status. So warriors die differently. If you die in war, you're buried differently. If you die... Uh, through wound in a war, you're also buried differently. But you're thinking when you had spears and clubs and things like that, not your drones. So you're buried differently. And if you were captured in war when you died, you're buried differently. And usually, because of the understanding of the living dead, if you, you, you died suddenly also not you know longevity and you were ill and you gradually faded away then you're buried outside the city so you don't come and disturb the the good people of Lake Wobegon and it may look strange to, to people, but because you live with your people and the purpose of death is also you become an ancestor so that you live among the living with blessing rather than with curse, it makes sense. So I will tell you what I do as a pastoral theologian if I were counseling people who are dying like this. And then you can figure out what you do as doctors who are with people who are dying and wondering where they're going to be buried, you know, with this diabetic sore that will not go away because that is also a wound and what type of wound it is and how you got it. So I try and reframe this death and dying, who is buried where, who is buried outside, um, Christologically. I recall for Christian people, one who was buried outside or who was crucified in a sense, outside the city gates, yes? There is a green hill far away. Without a city wall, it is not that the wall, the city had no walls. It is outside, yes? And who in that death includes all peoples, inside and outside this, and who takes their death 
even if it is sudden, even if it is um, wounds, because three, at least three wounds we know, takes that into himself. But is buried inside, yes? And so because he is buried inside, we can bury our people who ought to be buried outside inside so that they are with their people because that is how God collects all of us together. But that doesn't take away from the fact that you have to live in a way that allows for your dying to be a good death that allows you to be buried inside. And the elaborate mortuary and funeral rites all go to show the importance of the person, but then even the importance of death for that community because you gain one more ancestor. You gain one more watchful eye. It sounds weird until you, you remember cloud of witnesses. You know how we like to, to, to think that that cloud of witnesses is like nice angels hanging on a cloud somewhere. And yet, when we hear the living dead and the ancestors in here, then it sounds like, you know, some weaker rites that we need to dissociate from. Okay. Can we have a... Can you have Marjorie? It fell asleep, sorry. She said she'd come in. Thank you, Marjorie. Do you mind waking this up? Because what we were trying to do is to provide continuity. So this first clip is just about... <coughs> I should the move, video right? video or the, the CNN clip? What? Do you want the CNN video or oh, the, no, the, clip the, the quick time? This one? Uh-huh. Okay. Oh, no, no, let's see it in first, I think. Okay. So your people went to my people just to go do this, you see? As if we don't have any around here when you have your motor. No, we don't. Check out the billboard behind me. It's advertising a celebration of life. A funeral. And it says all sympathizers are welcome. Behold the sympathizers at 70-year-old Joanna Boafo's funeral. Getting down, grooving it up, having a good time. And we were told more than once, if there's no dancing, there's no funeral. Richard is Joanna's son. What do you think your mother would think of this funeral today? Uh, I think she'll be very happy. I think if she's anywhere, my mother is anywhere right now, she'll be very happy. That's not to say that funeral rites are all joyous. The mourners do some official crying and praying a respectful way to see the dead off to a better life. I am the resurrection and the life. Many, like Joanna, have traditional services at church, too. <laughs> the rest of the ritual is pure party time from the setup of the tents and chairs to the food and drinks choreographed like a wedding, and it can cost just as much. We meet Kwaku, the funeral planner. 
in charge of 30 funeral parties on this day alone. How much can it usually cost? An average funeral should cost around between fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. Twenty thousand dollars. Wow. For some, that extravagance extends to their resting place. Coffins have become a life statement in Ghana. For the musician, the footballer, the movie fan, usually the family picks the coffin. But this third-generation coffin maker wants people to pick their own coffin before they die. And what I try to encourage people is, during that day, it is only the coffin you will be going with and nothing else, so it's better. <laughs> but the coffin, like the party, we're told, is about consoling the family through a final send-off. What do you think happens to the soul of that person when you have such a great turnout like this? Jemima is a family friend here who tries to explain. That means the person was very friendly, was very charitable, was able to uh, socialize and was having a good communication with the people within the society. By all accounts, Joanna was the most caring of people. Ghana, that means it's time to party. Thank you. <laughs> She's not invited. <laughs> So far? Hey, she mentioned official mourners. Mm -hmm. Is, are, are, are those people who are paid to mourn or is that their Yes, in, 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 some, in, in some cultures. The Ashanti do that. Not everybody does that. Yeah. So this will be like your uh, funeral directors? No. <laughs> And the fact that you choose your coffins yeah. when you go to the funeral homes. I mean, I take students to the funeral homes and try and prime them to start thinking towards their death and, mm -hmm. you know, help people choose their funerals, uh, their, their, their coffins, or, you know, even start thinking about their own. Mm -hmm. So uh, an average um, funeral costs fifteen to $20,000 in Africa. That is atrocious. Why? And that is just an average funeral, uh, average funeral including the coffin. Could we see the other clip? You want a coffin like that, don't you? No. Yeah. So, so let's just see the. So, so this you saw those coffins with you know different shapes, you know. So you can have one with a stethoscope or something like that. 
Uh, yeah, it took a while for me. Do you see the satellite? That is a coffin. It's a house. But it has, it must have a TV inside it because it has a satellite dish. Wow. And will that be buried then? The coffin? We were just trying to figure that out. <laughs> Who's going to dig the hole? I don't know. <laughs> and who will give you the space for that? So I don't know where they're going to set it. But you, you, you look at the fact that this is a small, probably a small village, you know, because you see the dirt road. But we are playing a Christian song. You know, we, we, we're singing about... Could I hear... Okay, so we're, we're singing about the new Jerusalem. Okay, so we're singing about the new Jerusalem that is coming where uh, Christ and I are going to sit and dine. So in a sense, this says resurrection. This says something is happening in the future. But everything around it says no. This is my final resting place. So it better be good. As good as the house that I probably didn't get to to live in. And if I couldn't build my mom a house, I'm going to do it last day. Because this is where mom is going to live. I don't know how we're going to bury that. But you see, <laughs> but you see uh, the roof and you see the, the, the person. You know, the pictures of the person. You know, for, and, and then it looks like it's a, 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 a twofer. Uh, a duplex, you call it? Yeah. yeah, well, apart from the fact it's a two-story with a balcony. Did you see the balcony? <coughs> what will these things do? Will these turn it around? I was trying to look if anybody knows this is better than me. Okay, yeah. Okay, so it, it has a balcony. And how are you going to come out of the coffin and, you know? I don't know, but you have a balcony. You have everything. And that is what we mean by... By living dead. So, so that you're going to, to live as if you didn't die. And die as you've lived. Now how you care for people dying who think like this. Whether you hurry them to their death. Or try and sustain life. It becomes the issue. I think when the view, when someone's view of death um, is clear, it makes it easier for their caregivers, whether it's a medical professional mm -hmm. or a spiritual professional, to help them live in that way. Mm -hmm. If they're clear themselves. Mm -hmm. <coughs> They're waiting for this, you see. <laughs> and everybody is happy. Because this is not the end. So you live towards death. And you die because you have lived. Doesn't matter what it looks like to the rest of the world. You die because you have lived. Well, how do funerals look when the circumstances were <coughs> um, some sort of tragedy, maybe someone killed in the commission of a crime, mm -hmm. or so forth. 
Well, so then it, it, it's hurried. You know, you do it quickly. And then people are going to come, you know, as the, the, the young woman was saying, this is somebody who touched everybody's life. And, mm -hmm. and that is why, for me, refracting is Christologically makes sense to say to the to the criminal that your your life was taken into Christ's life if you're looking for the best arm robber in town he's on that cross mm. and to believe it enough to call people into that but do it in a way that doesn't say it's okay to go arm robbing understanding correctly um, in your culture when someone dies in some ways they almost enter, enter a new life mm -hmm. living dead and mm -hmm. they're so mm -hmm. in some ways they never they die but then they take on kind of this new life so right in Christianity a lot of times we have the idea of heaven and hell so mm -hmm. we hope or assume that we'll go to heaven but there is this possibility of something really terrible happening mm -hmm. to us afterwards if that's mm -hmm. our belief system mm -hmm. So I could see where that would frame um, or give us different perspectives on death because we know you're going to go on to the next life no matter what. But you don't know what it is like. It's like, well, I'm going to keep going. It, it's going to be different. But yes. Whereas in, for some people with their faith, it's like if I die, something really, really bad may happen to uh -huh. me. So you hold on to life as long as you can mm -hmm. because, mm -hmm. because of the uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because of the uncertainty. We sort of think we know. But just in case, you know, there's always the just in case. And so we want to do everything to, and yet in some, you've structured what each type of death, you know, leads to. So you sort of know, you know, because not everybody becomes an ancestor if you were a robber, you know, unless you go refracted Christologically and believe it. You know, if you're a robber, you know that you're going to be... You know, you, if you read African literature, you get thrown in the evil forest. Nobody even buries you. You know, and then the hyenas will come get you. So you read a Maasai creed that says Jesus died and the hyenas couldn't find his body. Because who, you know, he just threw you there. And so, honestly, when your people came to our people, we thought it was the bad people thrown in the evil forest. You know, because you came speaking in your nose. You know, because your, your, your syllables sounded to us because they were foreign. Like, you know, ghost-like, you know, because if you don't have nostrils, you're going to sound yes, no. Don't look at me. So we didn't pay you any attention until you started taking things like human beings. Then we realized, but it was too late. Quick question: How? How? I mean, the expense that's associated with the funeral. Um, I'm just trying to think through cultural similarities and differences. So it's a huge kind of worry in the American context, like the expense of like mm -hmm. burial and mm -hmm. the coffin and paying the funeral home, and mm -hmm. and uh, there's not much celebration associated with any of that. But mm -hmm. I see the celebration, but is there also like worry over the cost, or how, or is it? Kind oh, of usually everybody who comes to the funeral chips in. Everybody uh -huh. gives donation. Uh -huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So you come with your pocketbook with yeah. So you and yeah, yeah you you give donations. Doesn't matter how you know 
Mm-hmm. But what people are doing now is loaning money to people, you know, up front. But what happens usually is that the families get together and we decide how much this funeral is going to cost and then we levy uh, family heads, you know, so everybody, so they say, you know, that's what I'm saying, this is a clan work. So your people, everybody brings 10,000 something. So you count the number of people in your family because we are dividing this in clans. You count the people in your family and everybody (coughs) contributes to start. And then mourners and sympathizers come and give donations. So actually, you make off like a bandit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, when my father died, I borrowed money from from church. And uh, tried to pay them, and they said, oh. So I made off like a bandit. (laughs) You want to see the Netflix? Yes, so... So, so, but, but what happens there is not that different from here. The, the thinking through death and dying and whether we're going anywhere or not. And maybe if you start, this is a, a new Netflix. Uh, How are you doing? I know that's a stupid question. I don't think you're doing very well right now. But can you write for me so that we can talk a little bit, or do you not have the energy right now? Can you see? Do you want to write? Okay. Okay, I have a better idea. What's the first letter? T? No. Start one more time. Start one more time. I, I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <coughs> Can we try with these letters, okay? I, N, no, I'm, say it again. Is it about the tube? Is this about the breathing tube? Do you want the breathing tube out? Do you want me to take it away? You want it out. What if you die if I take it out? This is Theo Lenta, Long-Term Intensive Care at Highland Hospital in the ICU. 1419 is attendance. We don't get clear. We're not going to give them a chance to opt out. We're just going to do what we do with all of our patients, which is just plug them in and let them die on machine. What a way to talk about someone plugging in. This is not a, a toy. Not getting better on a breathing machine. Maybe this is a point where we kind of need to stop, decide, 
and maybe have put the tube in, kind of put you to sleep, and have the machine help breathe for you. It's a, it's some for some people it's an easy choice, and for some people it's not. I'm 38. I know you're 38. I know. I don't want to give my life away yet. I know. better today. You know that? Feel better. Look at y'all have been fighting you today. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah, that's right. I'll make you laugh as many times as I can. That's the deal. Okay. 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 This is very painful for you and your family. Absolutely. And we're going to, you know, we're all, I mean, everyone hopes for a miracle. I'm hoping for a miracle. I feel like maybe as a doctor, you know, being as smart and being as knowledgeable and being in inside of medical journals, you know, it, it can dwindle the optimism a little bit. I'm just trying to help you make a decision that's right for your mom. And that's why I want you to be able to think through this as clearly as you can, just thinking about what would my mom have said if the doctors were all saying, I don't think she'll wake up. My mom already made her decision, and that's how come her heart is still beating. She can go at any time, but she knows to stay here because she loves me. If I were to pull that life support, okay. there will be no me. Okay. Okay. And then there's another part in which, you know, we're saying we're praying. Mm -hmm. And how do we pray so in situations how? like this? You know, okay, because if we pull one, so, so the families are arguing in the room. One says, you know, if we pull it out and uh, she lives, that is an answer to prayer. If she doesn't live, that is still an answer to prayer. Uh, the other uh, brother is saying, you know, I, I'm trusting for a miracle. Uh, she already came through once. She's going to come through again. But what struck me most in this was um, the doctor, the female doctor saying, um, okay, I, I won't say this well. The medical people can help me. Um, uh, <coughs> she was going to try and put an IV uh, through the jugular, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, saw a nurse at the door saying, uh, please call the police. Someone is trying to hurt somebody here or something like that. And she came to, she realized, it's clear that this man is going to die. And here am I you know, going to hurt, really going to hurt him, you know, to try and keep death at bay when it, 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 is, it is this clear. And, and those for me are where the tensions are between uh, how we live here and how we die and how we live on the other side and how we die. I started with the story of the chicken. You know, because we haven't, we're not acquainted with death. Uh, not, not dying seems to be the way to go, rather than, <laughs> rather than dying. And, and, and how we, we, we balance, not that we can just live anyway and not care about, about our beings, but how do we live towards death, not as a scary thing, but 
as as the way life goes. Okay. So I am done. Now it's your turn. Questions, conversation. And that um, watching this, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to like Google it, <laughs> find it, and see it. So um, mm -hmm. many a time, um, a clinical chaplain, seven years. So um, when you you pick up on you like, what a way to talk about someone. Mm -hmm. Talk talking about the physician. Mm -hmm. Many times, many times, and. It got, you know, the, the role of the pastor, the chaplain, the social worker to remind them gently, ever so caring, this is still a person, mm -hmm. not just, you know, another case. Yeah. I was kind of picking up on that too, like, the position it seemed like she was having <coughs> her heart, and I was wondering, like, if she even had anyone in her own life die because she was talking to the patient almost like, yeah, it was a procedure or. I don't know, it was like something within what she said, but also just her tone of voice with that mm -hmm. first gentleman. And, and yes, several times she'll go and stand somewhere by herself. Mm -hmm. And you can, you can, so, so it's almost like she's split. Mm -hmm. You know, when she's yeah. with a patient, she, she, she's in her persona. Mm -hmm. Yes, she's in her persona. And then she becomes herself when she's, you know, almost slinking into a corner somewhere sure. and, and coming to her and wondering, what on earth is this? Mm -hmm. So, so then it, it becomes how are we training our past, no, our, 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 our physicians. I forget the old bedside manner, but are you saying they need to be less human when they are with humans? And what then does it mean uh, for, for their work? I mean, to talk about plugging someone in. I, I, I see the clinical chaplain sometimes the conflict between the doctors wanting to be present and empathetic, but also wanting the family to have the information about what's going to happen mm -hmm. biologically mm -hmm. and um, procedurally and medically if they choose X, Y, or Z. And the doctors wanting the families to be very clear about that. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of um, feeling the need to be very clear about that because of sort of the setup of the medical system right. and what they're you know, what they feel like they're professionally obligated to disclose. Mm -hmm. So I think, I see a lot of the tension of that, mm -hmm. especially in the ICU, because mm -hmm. I was an ICU chaplain for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes there's not an easy way to mm -hmm. break that information. Mm -hmm. Because it has become a, a system that has taken on a life of its own, yes. rather than hospital hospitality. Yes, yes. Rather than these are guests in our house, except that these are guests who can sue you <laughs> if a shingle falls on their head. And how, and how did we get to that space? And how can we? I think someone else had their hand up first. Uh, uh -huh, yes. Mm -hmm. And then you. I can speak to this from my perspective of the patient who's in the comative state with the medical team around you and the family there around you. And they're conversing, and you can hear everything that's being said about what's expected of your life in the next few hours, but you can't respond. Mm -hmm. And with everything in you, you're fighting against everything that's keeping you alive because you want to respond, but you can't. And you can hear this conversation. And so for me, it's very important for all of us to be mindful of the words we speak in the presence of those who are in those beds. Yes. Um, being in that bed and having those conversations around me 
it makes it harder for you to fight for the life that you're trying to preserve. Mm -hmm. So for me, it means that we have to understand dying as a process rather than, you know, which is how we think it, something vanished because, you know, my people willy-nilly are saying, you're going. And there's some people who died before they died. You know, they're lying there, but they were gone two weeks or so before you actually said they were dead. And there's some who didn't die before. That is how we used to have the bell. On the coffee, yeah. Just in case we put someone in the ground who didn't quite die, then we can judge them. Yeah. Um, I'm newly returning back to the American context, and I was just wondering if any of the medical people in the room or um, you know, Dr. Could, could speak to what you touched on about the systems that we have in place and I know that there are, are alternatives where um, both doctors and doctoral care systems are seen as midwives in a process. Mm -hmm. But even in different cultural settings where I've worked at, where that was the default, as more Western medicalized thinking permeated that environment, even palliative care doctors saw death as a failure. Mm -hmm. And so then to how to care care for them, but to to counter the system, the, the big structures that are reinforcing the mm -hmm. binaries. Right. Um, how do we do patient care well and care of those caring when there are these systems that are pushing that agenda? I think that is where, I mean, theology, medicine, and culture, if we are not only focusing on northern and southern culture in the U.S., uh, but looking at how other cultures do it might, might be a, a way to go forward. So, look, we can do death nice, you know, rather than see it as... If, if we understand that we came to die rather than we came to live, then what we were supposed to be doing, if we do it, is not a failure. But it means, you know, rethinking life and death. We, we have to do a real paradigm shift, you know, so that we are not working as hard as we are, you know. And, and then we, we find ways to stop transporting our bad behavior yeah. to other places and begin to learn how to import. Hey, if you can come and fetch gold from my country, please. Add something else like how to die well. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the poor doctor was what I call institutionalized. You know, she had spent so much time in the ICU that you know the lingo, the the behavior that you know that that's kind of what ends up happening at times. Um, for a lot of physicians, but I would I would counter that you you need to have the discussions need to start early. Our churches don't talk about death. Our churches aren't approaching people and and demystifying. We're so death averse that we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to deal with it. 
And so we end up in these situations like this with doctors who do not know us, don't know our cultures, don't know the family, family who doesn't know what mom wants, doesn't understand. And again, we need to have these things as ongoing. Um, and, you know, and like I said, I see church as one avenue to start having those conversations so that it doesn't come to crisis time, you know, and, and the poor patient that you're trying to see what their wishes are by having them right when they are, you know, drugged up and intubated. So that's my, my suggestion. trying to reconcile like Jesus' hot tears towards death, like in the death of Lazarus, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and also the sort of language of knowing that death is a destiny, and mm-hmm. we have to learn how to die well. Could you just maybe elaborate or just discuss? Right. I, I have a, an article or essay called Embracing and Resisting Death. <coughs> Uh, which talks about that, and Brett will find it for you. <laughs> 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 uh, but, but, but that is exactly it. Mm-hmm. To, to, uh, God's no and God's yes to death are both found in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And to do it well, we have to know when to resist it, when to say not on my watch. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but it calls for the wisdom yes. of the collective, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and then we need to know when to embrace it, knowing this is not the end, mm-hmm. you know. And and we find both extremes in scripture, mm-hmm. except that we want to live only one. I, 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 I try to say in that essay, how quickly, for lack of faith, and when it is time to resist death, we quickly go into, uh, nevertheless, not my will but thine. Serious cop out because we don't know if we can actually say, Let this cup pass from me. Yeah. Jesus said, Can I avoid this? Can I avoid this? Please, 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 with the cherry on top. Before. So don't go to Calvary without Gethsemane. Always, always, always. Don't go to Calvary without Gethsemane. That is the short version. You have to read the whole essay. I'll, I'll get it deeper. Yeah. Anybody else wants it? I'll yeah. find it. Um, we have time for maybe one or two more questions. We'll end it quarter after. Uh, yeah, well, just what just came and to then, mind because of your question was um, just a theological observation uh, that Jesus made concerning a blind man whom he healed. That's John 9. Because his disciples wanted to know, okay, what's the story with this man? Did somebody say that he had to be born blind? And Jesus made the point, no, he's blind just so I could come by and heal And I think that maybe Lazarus fell into that category. That was a necessary death so that a point could be proved, you know, by Jesus. Um, and so... But he was still emotional because he, this is his friend, you know, and so forth. But it wasn't the same as if um, this guy is dead and is never going to wake up. Jesus knew that he would. And so theologically, um, we, have to, we have to understand that some things are just because, or in the case of Jesus, so that he could do certain things to prove points. 
Hmm, except that there can be something very dangerous about framing it the way you just did. I, I think that saying neither, this is not about human beings, is what I'm hearing Jesus say. This is all about God. And, and when you also understand that the fully alive human is the glory of God, um, the glory of God is not to show, to show me and a man. Uh, we got this. It, it is about God for human beings. So for human beings, it shows up regardless of the situation. So I, 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 I sort of get what you're saying, but it, it can be uh, misused if we, misher, if we mishear it. So that um, Jesus saying, um, when God shows up, you see bigger things. Is different from um, we are going to let this go this way so you can see bigger things. But but you see that but the, the, the scripture actually um, states right exactly what the case was. That there was a specific question that was asked and it was answered in that mm -hmm. way. Right. Neither did this man nor his parents sin that he was to be born blind, but. He was born so that the works of God could be made manifested in him. You know, in other words, he was born so I could. He was born blind so I could come and heal. And that is exactly what I'm fighting against, because to say the way you're thinking about this is not right mm -hmm. is different from we did this for this. Does that make sense? Yeah. We didn't cause this blindness so that 2,000 years later, you know, because you have to think epigenetics, you know, while you were in your great-grandparents' loins, we've already cooked this thing up. <laughs> and, and, and there's a way to say that sounds like that. That sounds almost fatalistic. Um, the, the, the way to hear it in Hebraic thought, in Middle Eastern thought, when you hear Jesus say, is to say, we got this. Usually you're wondering, what did you go and do? What did your parents do? Jesus is saying, don't go there. Go here. So however you want to hear, uh, neither. But, you know, this is the alternative. Don't eat that. Eat this. Because this is how you grow. Okay, but that we can talk about later. Yes, ma'am. Last question for you, Gary. Last question goes to you. Um, yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, in the you have to. I'm the Yeah, I think that one-on-one, -on -one, it becomes comfort in the moment. Uh, larger conversations can be had about how my child behaved or how my father behaved. Uh, but 
um, I, I think the example uh, of Jesus is always clear. First we heal, and then we go, go we say go and sin no more. So we, we bring comfort and we show. And, and there is theological truth in that, that all of us are found in this, in, in this one who died, regardless of what, what we are, uh, unless Jesus came for just some people. And even if he did, he was more African than anything else, so we can claim him. <laughs> so, so then, then that, that, that is clear. If we believe that he came for all peoples, you know, and not just some people, not even some good people, but really the one who goes looking for the nine, uh, the one, and leaves the ninety-nine. As somebody told us two days ago, as if he didn't know math, then, 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 then you have to hear it. But you have to have been living it daily in your preaching, in your walking with dying, in your, in the way you treat people in the hospital and all of that, for them to hear this as ah, yeah. The end. <laughs> three, three points of thanks. Um, <laughs> first of thanks to you. I've got to bring you here with us today. And uh, I've, I've learned an awful lot. It's really, really been cool. Thank you. Thanks to Brad for digging up all the articles that you, you know. <laughs> give me your email address. I'll get it to you. <laughs> Thank you to the Trend Center for hosting us today, providing our lunch and the space to meet. Um, this is a... This is a Great organization in itself, and we'll we'll say more. Provide opportunities to learn more about that in future seminars. And uh, thanks to all of you for being here today. Look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Hi. I'm just a rascal. <laughs> 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 oh, it was really honored to be here. I, I,